You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And my guest today is an historian who has brought me, as she surely will bring you, enormous reading pleasure with her new Yale University Press volume titled 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, The Election Amid a Storm. Susan Dunn is a professor in the arts and humanities at Williams College. Among her other historical writings, she has co-authored with historian and political scientist James McGregor Burns, The Three Roosevelts, about, of course, Theodore Franklin and Eleanor. In her new book, 1940, Professor Dunn tells the extraordinarily evocative story of our nation divided so bitterly in 1940 between isolationist and interventionist forces, between American firsters, and those of us who believed instead that a free America as we knew it could not long survive Europe's and England's defeat by Hitler. So that in the presidential race that year, many Americans saw Franklin D. Roosevelt's defeat of Republican presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie, with FDR's re-election to a thoroughly unprecedented third term, as absolutely necessary. And I trust you'll indulge my personal memories as a skinny 15-year-old political partisan parading the streets of Upper West Side Manhattan, passing out flyers that read, A horse's tail is soft and silky. Lift it up and you'll find Wilkie. <laughs> it didn't take long, of course, for most Americans to realize that party imperatives aside, when it came to the basic issue of that presidential election year, strict neutrality towards both the Axis and the Allied powers. FDR and Wendell Wilkie really saw eye to eye, both siding with England, however fervently some of Wilkie's fellow Republicans joined isolationist aviation hero Colonel Charles Lindbergh in believing that it was Germany instead that reflected the wave of the future. Oh. And I would first like to ask today, to ask Professor Dunn to elaborate a bit on those isolationists and American firsters, and on how her book's title can legitimately join them all together. 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, the election amid the storm. How can you put those names, that fact, together? Well, you're so right that FDR and Wilkie were both internationalists. And you might have been thrilled that FDR won, but I must say that Wilkie was a real mensch. He was a man of tremendous integrity, great humanity, generosity. And on the question of civil rights, he was ahead of FDR, who, as you know, had to uh, kowtow quite a bit to the South, since uh, the South was his uh, most important political base. 
Um, the isolationists, yes, Lindbergh was their principal spokesman, the charismatic, heroic aviator who flew across the Atlantic in a single-engine plane that he himself had designed in 1927. And uh, one can get on YouTube the, the uh, videos of the ticker tape parade that he was thrown in New York. So he was a great hero. Um, what happened is that uh, a few years later, as everyone knows, his child was kidnapped. And Lindbergh and his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, felt very harassed by the American press. And they left the United States and moved to Germany. Actually, not to Germany, first to England and then to, and then to France. But they traveled a lot in Germany. And they were treated as great dignitaries in Germany. And Lindbergh fell for all the German propaganda, on the one hand, and was dazzled by Hitler, whom he felt was a great visionary. Um, on the other hand, he did learn about the tremendous uh, technological advances in German aviation, that uh, to a great extent, Germany was ahead of the United States. And when Lindbergh did come back to the United States to live permanently in 1939, um, he spoke to people in, uh, in national defense uh, circles and helped inspire uh, defense um, uh, research that ultimately resulted in things like the Manhattan Project. So on the one hand, Lindbergh uh, did make a contribution. On the other hand, his isolationism was completely poisonous. Uh, he felt that the United States was protected by the two vast oceans, that we were invulnerable, impregnable, and he also, he and his wife both felt that, as you mentioned, the wave of the future. That's the title of his wife, Anne Mara Lindbergh's best-selling book that came out in October 1940 at the height of the election season. It's a short little book, and she wrote exquisitely. But the book is rotten to the core. It's called The Wave of the Future, and the wave of the future, according to Anne Mara Lindbergh, was fascism. And it was dazzling, and it was dynamic. And she put the word democracy in quotation marks because it was so quaint and outmoded and old-fashioned. And who would possibly want checks and balances and that uh, slow process? But one, of course, in the 20th century would need a great dreamy romantic dictator like Hitler. How so, did Wilkie win the party's nomination then if Lindbergh expressed what must have been some substantial part of Republican isolationist thinking. If w Wilkie and Roosevelt were both internationalists, but Roosevelt, for the most part, had his party behind him. If Wilkie had won, we would have also had a great anti-fascist president, but he would have had most of his party not behind him, very divided. At one point, uh, right after winning the nomination, Wilkie said he wanted to debate with FDR, and Harold Dickey said, no, uh, Wilkie should debate with his own party members because they didn't agree. Um, where, what was again the question? Well, the, the question really had to do with how could he, Wilkie have gotten the nomination oh, that's, yes, exactly. from these people. When is the Republican convention in Philadelphia? It's in the middle of June 1940. And who's, who were the candidates for the GOP nomination? All isolationists, Taft, Robert Taft, very conservative isolationist senator from Ohio. Herbert Hoover, believe it or not, thinks he's going to make a comeback. Arthur Vandenberg, another isolationist senator from Michigan, and Thomas Dewey, also quite isolationist, the um, district attorney in New York. 
But what happens? June 22, 1940, France surrenders to Hitler. That's the eve of the GOP convention. You think that did it? Absolutely, absolutely. They picked the one dark horse, the one internationalist in the whole convention, yes. What about the stories one hears about uh, the way the galleries uh, were uh, loaded by Wilkie's people and that it was the we want Wilkie chance that came through the convention that stampeded it? I, I don't know if it stampeded it, but he, he was well or, somewhat well organized. He wasn't well organized according to what you write. It, it, exactly. It was m perhaps his backers, um, especially uh, Luce, the publisher of Time, Life and Fortune. He, he did have important backers. What's interesting about Wilkie, I said that he's immense, he's a great internationalist, a, uh, an inspirational person, but he, he had never run before for public office. So the dark horse at the GOP convention is the one person who had never before run for any public office, not for dog catcher. He was a utilities magnet, the head of a giant uh, Southern Utilities holding corporation. And his campaign, in fact, was quite amateurish. Uh, we were talking before about FDR's great speechwriter, Robert Sherwood, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, whom FDR tapped to help him write his incredibly moving and beautiful speeches. Wilkie had no one. He had a staff of amateurs. So it, his campaign was disorganized. Um, he won 10 states, FDR won 38. But what's so interesting about that is that and naturally they fought and attacked each other as rather gently, but nevertheless during the campaign. But as soon as the election was over, they came together and they became what I call almost a team. Uh, and at one point FDR said uh, that Wendell Wilkie was a godsend to the United States, that without Wendell Wilkie, we might not have had Lend-Lease, which was probably the one of the most important policies during the war that helped win the war, that supplied Britain with all of the uh, um, war material, planes, tanks, whatever they needed, basically for free, we would lend them. And, uh, and, he, and Wilkie also supported selective service, which is another interesting detail about this amazing election season, uh, that right before the election, the FDR wanted to win, but nevertheless, he took an astounding chance by passing and signing uh, a Selective Service Act, compulsory universal military training and service. Weeks before the election, all these American boys are going to be drafted. And at the same time, he was saying in his campaign speeches that he had a promise to make to American mothers and fathers that I will not send your boys to fight in foreign wars. That was the hooker, wasn't foreign wars. The war became ours. Then. If we're attacked, he said that, um, if we're attacked, it's not a foreign war, and that's actually what happened. But nevertheless, they, those were weasel words. What, did, what do you as a historian think about the charge, and it is a charge that has been made by the former isolationists, the America Firsters, that um, uh, President Roosevelt actually set things up. I'm not talking about the notion that he had the planes lined up um, in the Hawaiian Islands uh, waiting for the Japanese to attack, but that Roosevelt made it impossible, given what the Japanese wanted, given what Hitler wanted, for anything to happen other than that we would be attacked. 
What's your judgment of that? Um, when my students ask questions like that, I... You put them down? I refer them to a wonderful article, and I suggest that just about everybody read it by the great political scientist Richard Hofstadter, and the title of the article is The Paranoid Style in American Politics. Now, come, come, Professor and Dunn. F FDR was the assistant secretary of the Navy in World War I. He did not want that fleet destroyed. And also on YouTube, YouTube, by the way, the whole universe is on YouTube, and I show these historical videos to my students. It's an amazing resource. Anybody, anybody who's listening to us who hasn't seen what the attack in Pearl Harbor was like can get, get that. And the devastation is phenomenal and heartbreaking. And to think that the president could have wanted that or even partially engineered it. You're, you're, Nevertheless, the yeah. Japanese did us a favor because FDR didn't want to enter the war. He, he did not want to take action. Unless we were attacked. Unless we were attacked. So the Japanese helped us. And then what happens a day or two later? Hitler declared war on the United States. Thank you, Adolf for doing that. FDR was very, very ambivalent. Interestingly, the people who were the most pro-war were his Republican appointees. At, uh, also, what confused the Republican convention in Philadelphia wasn't just France's surrender to Hitler. It was two days before that, FDR appointed two Republicans to two of the key posts in his cabinet, Henry Stimson, Secretary of War, lifelong Republican, and Frank Knox, lifelong Republican Secretary of the Navy. And they didn't agree with FDR that we would give uh, England all help short of war. They said, why not war? That you know, let me, I'm gonna take you back a moment. You raised the hackles with me, referring to Dick Hofstadter's uh, paranoid um, comments, not paranoid comments, comments about the paranoid style in, in America. Uh, Dick Hofstadter was my teacher. Um, oh, you were lucky. I was very, very lucky. I want to be as realistic as he was. Certainly, Roosevelt was no great hero to him uh, when he wrote his American political leadership, American political, what was the American political? Tradition. Tradition and the men who made it. Um, Roosevelt was not a great hero to him. Would Roosevelt have been less of a uh, hero for you, and I gather that he is, had he um, conducted himself in a way that was certain to uh, bring the Japanese into an attacking position and the Germans into not, well, a Well, certainly not at the position. cost of the, the, what happened in Pearl Harbor. But I do personally wish that the United States had entered the war earlier. Um, it's a, there are two things that are very personal to me about this book. One is the introduction to the dedication to my parents, my mother who escaped from Germany in 1938, my father who was served in World War II. Um, so it's a, it's a personal story too. And, and it's also personally intellectual because when I say the election amid the storm in the title, I was seeing a movie last night, The Mortal Storm, believe it or not, mm -hmm. um, Frank Borzaghi's great uh, 1940 anti-Nazi film. And I'm thinking I should have called the book The Election Amid the Mortal Storm 
because what is being threatened? Western civilization itself is being threatened, and Western civilization represents everything that is most precious, that, in, in my opinion, that human beings have ever accomplished. Uh, Judeo-Christian morality, things as simple as the golden rule, and the, the legacy of the Enlightenment. Then how do you account as a historian for the sizable and certainly very influential isolationist America First movement? How do you account for the fact that Lindbergh, who was a great hero, uh, and you named before and in your book, I was astonished as you went down the list of people who I didn't know had been uh, in the America First yes, movement. Yes, yes, yes. Very it was surprising. King, Kingman Brewster. Absolutely. Or, how do you account for that? I think naivete, great political naivete, um, ostrich-like blindness. Most historians say that these people were perhaps mostly well-meaning. Uh, Do you think so? Well-meaning only if they were also stupid and didn't read the newspapers and didn't see the front pages of the newspapers and see what was going on. Many of them were scarred by World War I. Millions of deaths that were senseless deaths, mustard gas, trench warfare, they, they, were, um, they were scarred by that. Uh, they were anti-Semites. There were Midwestern isolationists. For some reason, the Midwest, more isolated from the coast, was the most isolationist region in the country. There were some people like uh, Lawrence Dennis, the uh, theorist of American fascism, who believed in fascism. Again, that it was more the future, the wave of the future, dynamic, etc. There were some businessmen who wanted to continue um, trading and working for uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, Ford Motor Company was making engines in Germany until very late. Um, Do very you think that those who have criticized the American press were correct, who said that the press didn't until the very end let us in sufficiently to what was going on in Germany? I don't think so, because I lived through those years. Oh, I think the, there were great correspondents. Uh, Shire was reporting from Berlin, to kind of late, 1940. Late. You have Edward R. Merrow. Um, I, th I think a lot of my research in the book is from American newspapers because now we, I have a, and people have um, online databases that historians never had access to. Now it's called ProQuest. I have access in one, in, time doesn't exist on, in, on these websites, so in, in two seconds I can access every editorial on it, Wendell Wilkie in a certain month or a certain year, whatever you want, it's all there. From my research, the newspapers are informing the American public quite well. Um, there is a resistance to that. For instance, on the question of immigration, there was a period in which Germany wanted to expel the Jews. Great, free ticket out, and countries wouldn't take them. And the United States including was the United absolutely including the United States. The, uh, the restriction, they weren't, they, the United States was not even filling its immigration quotas, which were, um, which had been reduced more and more over the years. 
uh, and they were especially concerned because there was anti-Semitism in the United States and unemployment, so they, they were uh, quite averse to, uh, to immigration. Nevertheless, they understood what was happening in Germany. Professor Dunwin, uh, Sinclair Lewis wrote, it can't happen here. Uh, do you think it could have happened here? Is that your judgment? No, I don't think it could have happened here, no. Thanks to Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal. Alexander Hamilton in his first Federalist essay, Federalist number one, uh, in which he is uh, arguing that the state, state ratifying conventions should accept the Constitution. He says, this Constitution is the result of reflection and choice. That sums up American democracy, reflection. It, it, we believe in intellect. We believe in rational debate, in deliberation, in thought, in human reason. And in, free, and in choosing the form of government that we want. And Alexander Hamilton also said to a friend, we think in English. There's that tremendous intellectual, cultural bond with Great Britain. And so I don't think it could have happened here. But of course, what I'm talking about is, could it happen here now? Philip Roth wrote a novel called, uh, for which he did nice research, called The Plot Against America, right. in which he imagines that Lindbergh wins in 1940, and that FDR comes back in 1944. Uh, so he, it's an, an interesting exercise in uh, counterfactual history. Um, but personally, I, I love the United States. Again, I mentioned how personal it is to me. I'm very grateful that the United States let my mother in here in 1938. And, um, and I, I see how, how much uh, young immigrants believe in our constitution and our principles. In fact, if I have just another 30 seconds, I could say that many countries, you're French or perhaps you are Swiss or Spanish because you have a common language or religion or history. In the United States, what holds us together is our belief in this piece of paper, the constitution. We have no common race, common religion, perhaps not even a common language, but we all become, uh, neophytes, acolytes of this Constitution and what it stands for, self-government. Which leads me to a little research I did into your teaching, um, thinking about the, the, the course that you give on the Roosevelt style of leadership in which your description of it, and we just do have a couple of minutes left, you talk about the three Roosevelts transform the role of government in American society, bringing about fundamental and lasting change. Would you repeat that today? Would you say the same thing today? I don't know when you wrote that course description. Um, Fundamental and lasting change. Yes, I think the Theodore Roosevelt coming after um, decade after decade of laissez-faire government in which government was completely passive and letting the so-called robber barons and the Gilded Age take over. Um, set the, Theodore Roosevelt set the stage for FDR. And uh, FDR believed in it, and it hasn't yet been fulfilled, but nevertheless, many Americans still believe in it. Um, he's, he's, 
he gave a talk in which he, he spoke about an economic bill of rights. He said, our bill of rights is fine, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, but not if you're hungry. If you're hungry, it's not enough to have freedom of speech. And we have economic rights too, to, to security in old age, to health care, to an education, to decent living conditions, and even to a few days off from work a year so that we can relax. Um, I think that has become uh, a, a core message in American government that people on, most likely people on all sides of the political spectrum agree on, although they interpret it in different ways. Gosh, honestly, you believe that and that the fights that are going on today do somewhat give the lie to the notion that there was a permanent Roosevelt revolution. I don't see the Republicans trying to undo Social Security. Um, they're extremist strains that are trying to cut back on Medicaid, and privatizing Social Security? He, he had to dump that idea pretty fast. It didn't uh, work. It didn't get the support for it for good political reasons. I was speaking to one uh, conservative newspaper columnist and asking him if the New Deal offended him, and he said, no, it wasn't so much the New Deal, it was the Great Society. I mean, it was Lyndon Johnson, not FDR. It was the expansion under LBJ that if that columnist uh, speaks for other moderate conservatives, apparently that that's their beef. Well, I, I can't argue with you because you're, saying, you're quoting a contemporary um, journalist, but I am interested in this notion about fundamental and lasting change. And I, I, I must say that your book, 1940, about Wilkie and even about Lindbergh and Hitler and their relationship uh, in analyzing the campaigns and the election is one of the most interesting, one of the most thrilling I've read in a long, long time. And I much appreciate your willingness to put this all down on paper. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for joining me today, Susan Dunn. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation, the Bluestein Family Foundation, the Joan Gans Cooney and Peter G. Peterson Fund, Carnegie Corporation of New York, 
the Malkin Fund, the May and Samuel Rudin Family Foundation, the Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.